Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagen, your host for this podcast and a professor of anthropology in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I welcome Dr. Edward Ashford Lee to talk about his recent book, The Coevolution, The Entwined Futures of Humans and Machines, which was published by MIT Press in 2020. Edward, thank you for joining me on the STS channel. John, uh, I really appreciate the invitation to do this. I, I love this project that you're doing, and I'm, uh, I feel privileged to be involved in it. Oh, well, I'm, I'm just delighted to have you here. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Um, before we get going, I want to give the, our listeners a little bit of uh, background. Um, Edward is the Robert S. Pepper Distinguished Professor in Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at the University of California at Berkeley, where he's been on the faculty since 1986. He's the author of Plato and the Nerd, which I've got to read with a title like that, The Creative Partnership of Humans and Technology, which uh, also came out on MIT Press back in 2017. He's uh, published a number of textbooks and research monographs and more than 300 papers and technical reports. Uh, it is a very distinguished biography that would basically take me an entire hour to detail. So I'm going to just dive right into the book uh, that we're discussing today. And um, the coevolution is, I, I think it's a really interesting exploration of the, the intertwining of humans and their machines. And one of the things I really enjoyed about this is rather than setting up a, a binary uh, of us and them with sort of, you know, machines and humans, the book shows this growing interdependence between humans and their technological interlocutors. And it raises some really important questions about how that symbiotic relationship is, is unfolding in the modern world. I think this is a really significant contribution to thinking about the social implications of computers, robots, and AI. And, and I might add that I think, you know, because of your technical expertise and your understanding of this, you bring something to it that, that an anthropologist like me cannot really bring to it because I don't have that piece of it. And so it's a, truly, I think, a very sophisticated way of looking at how humans interrelate with their machines. And so I'd like to begin by asking how, as a computer scientist, um, you became interested in asking questions about uh, what might be thought of as the cultural unfolding of the technologies you describe. What led you to write this book? Well, John, that's a great question. Um, and the, the short answer is that um, none of my colleagues were doing it. You know, I realized that there's a lot of books out there written by very thoughtful scientists about the relationship of science with, with society, um, but really not a lot written by the engineers who create technology about the relationship between the, that technology and engineering in society. And I think thinking back, I... I think the reason that scientists have stepped to the plate more than engineers is that they were driven by, uh, by the realization of the power that science had acquired to really affect humanity. I think particularly with the development of the atomic bomb in the mid 20th century, that's when you started to see scientists really coming out and writing very thoughtfully about the relationship of their field with, um, with society. But, in engineering and technology, I think uh, the power has really become only recently visible. I mean, we're seeing now uh, that computing seems to threaten to destroy democracy. Uh, it has the capability of cementing authoritarian powers like it has in China. Uh, it has the capability of replacing entire careers with artificial intelligences. Um, it's got the potential, I think, to either accelerate or decelerate carbon emissions and consequently climate change. And the scariest one for me is it seems to have a certain amount of power to control our thoughts. So the question that I address in this book is whether we're really in control of that power. 
And my conclusion in the book is that um, we're much less in control than we engineers like to think. Now, you know, non-engineers may not be surprised by that, but I think the engineers who develop technology tend to think of their creations as very much their own progeny, something that came entirely out of the creative processes of their mind. In the book, I, I coined the term digital creationism for the idea that technology is the result of top-down intelligent design, that all of the computers, the software, the networks that we have today, that these are all the result of conscious, deliberate human decisions. Now, you know, I mean, I personally write a lot of software. I, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. I do a lot of very intricate technology development. And I used to be a digital creationist. I used to think that all of these things that I, all of these programs that I created were purely the result of my own creative processes. Um, but I've come to realize that there's actually uh, much bigger forces at play. And these are forces over which we have very little control. So when I write software, for example, my thinking is affected by the nature of the programming languages, the libraries, the software tools that I use, all of which were developed by many people over decades. And there's kind of a feedback process where the tools themselves, of course, are software tools. And those were created in a way that was also similarly uh, very strongly influenced by the, its own predecessors and so on. And so it seems to me that I was really incorrect in thinking that the things I created were entirely my own creation. It's a little bit like, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you come back with a bag of groceries and you feel like you've accomplished something for the day and you forget the enormous infrastructure that enabled that accomplishment, right? The development of the car that got you there, the, uh, the ability of our economy to deliver this incredible array of fresh produce and make it available to you, and the myriad of things that um, play into that accomplishment so much more than what you just did. And uh, so I think what I'd like to do in a way is force a conversation among the technology developers that acknowledges that um, that we're not entirely in control of this process. We can nudge it, we can affect it in various ways, and we need to learn to do that intelligently. Uh, but we've got a rather long way to go, I think. I, I agree. And I, I think this is actually one of the really important uh, aspects of the book. As an anthropologist who does a fair amount of work, you know, looking at, at technology and science from a, a perspective of, of culture. I think one of the things that um, you know, many anthropologists have, have come to realize is that our technologies are cultural productions. And that's actually quite an interesting observation because it, it, it makes it clear that the things that we think of as being kind of these creations from this top down or, or these objective things that, that we put out there are really deeply in, embedded and intertwined with the way that uh, we interact with the world through the, the cultures that, that we create. And I actually really appreciated that aspect of the book because, uh, to, to be quite honest, when I've, I've spoken to many engineers uh, and scientists, um, they, they tend to do something that you don't do in this book and simply treat the, the thing they're looking at as sort of a, a technical problem that has to be solved. And instead of doing that, what you wind up doing is you really explore the complexity of what's going on with this and um, really kind of bring the reader through the fact that this isn't a simple technical problem that we can just sort of, you know, run the numbers and figure out how to solve um, because it is so kind of wrapped up in who we are as human beings. So I, I really appreciated that aspect of the book. Yeah, it's um, there, there is, of course, a part of any engineering enterprise that is about solving some well-defined problem, but it's actually a really tiny part. Um, most of what uh, engineers and computer scientists do is much more blue sky, and there it's much more exploration of what the technology is capable of, and then that exploration inevitably leads you in unexpected directions. 
Yeah, that's, uh, I think, well, that, that could describe what an anthropologist does and, and I think what a lot of other people do. And, and one of the ideas that, that runs throughout the book and that I, I really found to be quite significant and interesting is that you blur the lines between what we usually think of as life and non-life. And I actually think in doing that, you blur the lines between technology and culture and nature and artifice. There's a lot of blurring that goes on. And, and early in the book, you talk about living digital beings and discuss what you refer to as technospecies. And you ask a very intriguing question. Um, are we witnessing the emergence of a new life form on our planet? I think it would be interesting if you could unpack what you mean uh, uh, by this for our listeners, because I, th I think it's uh, you know both intriguing and perhaps for some people even somewhat frightening. Yeah, thanks for that question, John. I um, that's actually I confess that's part of the book that I had the most fun with was exploring this idea of of technology as living, and I actually first got that idea when I was reading, I mean, I heard it first really from George Dyson, who's a historian who wrote this wonderful book called Turing's Cathedral. And he was talking about uh, having taken a tour of Google's server farms with million, million or more servers. And he describes them as a collective metazoan organism and says that they have the power to make life as comfortable as possible for its human symbionts. So he was kind of representing the machines as taking care of all these employees at Google who were then in turn nurturing the machines. It was a really amazing image to me at the time and very thought provoking image. And then I learned more about this idea from Kevin Kelly, who was the uh, founding editor of Wired magazine, who's written extremely thoughtful work about about this and written quite a bit and even given a TED talk. And um, he describes technology as the seventh kingdom of life and you coined the term the technium for this. Um, so what does this really mean? Well, in Kevin Kelly's book, he included very broadly technological artifacts, whereas in my case, I'm really interested more in computing and networking. And there's a, there's a good reason for that. Uh, but, you know, consider for example, Wikipedia, it's a, um, obviously a technological artifact. Um, it was, uh, started by Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger way back in 2001 as a relatively small project running on a single server. It's been running ever since since 2001. So it's, I guess, 21 years old now. And it's been running more or less continuously responding to its environment like a living thing does and growing like a living thing does. I mean, just as, you know, the cells in our body are in our human bodies are being constantly replaced. So are the servers in Wikipedia. Uh, they get replaced without taking the system down. And, you know, today, none of the cells that are part of Wikipedia's operations were part of its body in 2001. It runs on rack-mounted servers that are yeah, located at five data centers distributed around the world. And so it's grown. It responds to its environment. Those are two characteristics of living things. It does, of course, it's had an enormous amount of help from its human symbionts as it grows, but you can't name any other living thing that hasn't had an enormous amount of help from other human, I mean, other living creatures, right? I mean, humans couldn't grow without the help of other living creatures. Um, so the fact that there is help from other living creatures is, doesn't really disqualify something from being humans. I mean, from being living, I'm sorry. Um, there's other aspects. Okay. So perhaps one of the most challenging ones is, you know, is it actually able to reproduce? Is it able to procreate? Is it able to mutate, uh, like, like living things do? Well, the fact is that there are hundreds of different kinds of wikis out there today. Um, many of them are directly derived from Wikipedia. 
They probably include significant snippets of code uh, originally written by Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger. So you can think of this these snippets of code as analogous to DNA that was inherited. They certainly have mechanisms that are very, very much um, uh, derived from uh, Wikipedia's mechanisms. So, so GitHub, for example, makes extensive use of wikis that are directly derived uh, from Wikipedia. So they, there seems to be some procreation and some mutation happening, which is, you know, another characteristic that we generally associate with living things, not not uh, non-living things. And you know, Wikipedia even has certain other, you know, more technical aspects of living things. So homeostasis, for example, the ability to kind of maintain an internal condition. So the human body, for example, maintains. Uh, uh, state reasonably stable operating temperature. Well, so does a Wikipedia data center. Um, the, the voltages within the data servers are regulated by these feedback systems that maintain stable voltages. Uh, there's also a certain amount of uh, stability and robustness that is uh, also something that we think of as appearing only in living things. So for example, if a server in in one of these server racks dies, the system doesn't go down. It keeps operating. It's got this ability to um, tolerate uh, 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 this, uh, you know, death of some of its components. And in fact, you can even, uh, you know, the, the people tending to these uh, data centers can come in and do a hot swap and replace uh, one server with another, and it just keeps operating. So, this is these are features that are really things we tend to associate much more with living things than with non-living things. So in an earlier version of the book, I actually with my working title was Living Digital Beings, which is an awkward title because I, I always have to spell it out for people. But so I shortened it to the acronym LDBs and and I started actually referring to these living things, and, or if, if we want to call them living things, is LDBs. And um, my publisher hated that. Uh, the publisher thought that this was a silly word and that it would detract from the seriousness of my message. And so the publisher forced me to pull that word from every place but the preface of the book, uh, where I make a brief mention of it. But And they're probably, they were probably right. But uh, Anyway, I kind of liked the term LDBs because it put forth right in front of us a very challenging idea, which is that our relationship with technology is a lot more complex than certainly than I had thought before I undertook this project. And that technology is acquiring a lot more autonomy and, um, you know, mechanisms that we are not completely in control of, much like our interactions with other living things. I mean, today, I, one analogy that I use in the book is our human relationship with our gut bacteria. It's extremely important to our well-being. It's biologically much more primitive than the human body. Um, so there's an asymmetry there, as there is today with technology. The the fact is we may be awed at technology, but it's much more primitive than what the human mind and brain and, and uh, body is capable of. Um, it may not stay so primitive, but today there is very much an asymmetry there. But there's also a very strong symbiosis. The human body would be very, you, you would become very ill if you killed off all the gut biome and our society would become very ill if we killed off all the computers today. Indeed. Uh, it, it, as you describe this, it, it, it made me think that, you know, perhaps part of your publisher's discomfort was, you know, certainly it, well, will, will people, you know, uh, be comfortable with that title in terms of buying the book, but also um, as you kind of name it in that way, the discomfort might be even a product of a kind of biocentrism that we have um, a difficulty with thinking about the, the, the wall between technology and, and, and what we think of as living things. 
biological living things as that being broken down. Do you think that might have something to some kind of contribution to that? I think it does. And, you know, one of the, one of the problems, of course, with thinking of these technological artifacts like Wikipedia as living is that there no, we don't have a widespread agreement on what the term living means. And to many people, it requires biology. In which case, if that's part of your definition, then there's no question Wikipedia is not living. Um, But to me, that's a rather arbitrary definition and that we should be instead thinking about what our relationship is with these technologies. And can we learn something from the analogy if we think of the technologies as if we were interacting with other living things? that would that give us additional insights that might help us nudge the processes of, you know, controlling really our own evolution with technology. Yeah. That brings me to something that you talk about later in the same chapter, which I, I think is just an incredibly important point. You say very clearly, life is not a thing. It's a process. Um, this captures something that I, have long seen as a problem, seen as a problem with the way that we um, tend to look at our world. We we often um, tend to see what's around us as these things and objects. Uh, for a long time, culture and society have been constructed this way. And you, you really bring out the point that um, what's going on is this this continual changing. You bring this right down to the point at the level of the material body, which you note is isn't a thing it's a changing process that's always different from what it just was you know there's no concrete edward lee there's no concrete john trapagan uh, but instead we're never really the same thing that we were just a few minutes or a few seconds ago you know the the fact that you and i are talking right now for the first time uh we're different as a result of that and we will always be different um so for me i i thought that um you know, thinking about life this way, you, you, in essence, what you bring out is a sense that not that life is changing, but that life is change and everything is always changing. And I, I think that this is important for a lot of reasons, but you know, it, it really raises the idea of not making too much sense to make a strong differentiation or maybe any differentiation at all between life and non-life. Um, because everything is always changing around us all the time. That's not something that's limited to life. It's not limited to technology. It's not limited to rocks. Uh, the time span may be different in terms of the rate of the change, but change is simply a, a feature of the, the universe that we live in. And I'm curious what you might think of that idea as a way to think about life. Yeah, there's this um, wonderful quote that's attributed to um, Daniel Dennett, the philosopher from Tufts, where he said, uh, about life. Uh, it ain't the meat, it's the motion, which is kind of a not very subtle uh, hat tip to a rather body blues song. Um, but uh, that idea that, that life is a process, uh, not a thing, is something that I think, uh, you know, I mentioned Kevin Kelly earlier with his technium. I think he kind of missed that point, or, or at least he had a little bit of a different take on it, right? Because he included um, technological artifacts that were very static, you know, something like a hammer or a musical instrument. One, one of his favorite ones was a coronet. He talked about a coronet as being a living thing. And what he, what he really meant by that is that I think he was, he was referring to the idea of a coronet rather than the coronet itself uh, being the living thing. Um, it's more like what. Richard Dawkins uh, called a meme, right? Which is this replicable idea. Uh, Dawkins uh, argued way back in 1976 in his book, uh, The Selfish Gene, that memes, ideas, have many of the properties of living things, including you know the ability to reproduce and evolve, of course, again, with the help of their human symbionts. But what I'm talking in my, about in my book is really quite different. Wikipedia is not a thing. If if you take the power from the servers, then it dies. It's no longer living. The servers are not the living thing. The, the process is the living thing. 
Um, and you know, it's computers, uh, without software running on them are corpses. So the fact is that, you know, so Wikipedia as a process has a lot more autonomy than any meme. So, so Dawkins memes require a human brain to host them in some sense, right? They don't really materialize until they materialize in a brain. Um, whereas Wikipedia has its own body and it can continue to process even without interaction with humans. In fact, um, Wikipedia does interact with non-human um, entities out there. There's all these bots on the web that are constantly barraging it with all sorts of queries and attempts to get around its defenses and so forth. Um, so, you know, it's got a lot more autonomy than any meme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I this kind of, this brings me to, um, I think in chapter three, you, you raise a, what I found to be a very interesting point that you, you talk about Wikipedia in relation to this. And, uh, you, you argue that, that in a sense, um, this idea of humans becoming cyborgs in the future, well, it's already here that we have in one sense, at least already become cyborgs in the sense that we delegate significant parts of our thinking to the technoscape. And, you use Wikipedia as an example of this, and I, I actually really appreciated the fact that you pointed out that Wikipedia is a really useful tool despite what high school teachers tell our kids. I've had the same experience with my kids being told, never look at Wikipedia, and my students at, at UT are, are, you know, if I ask them, were you told in high school not to use Wikipedia, and, I, and they always say, yep, we were told never to use it, and I find it to be an absolutely fabulous starting point for almost any idea I have. It, it helps me to work through and think through the ideas. And, and I think that's part of where you were going with this is that, that we keep knowledge in places like Wikipedia that we access and that we, inter- we interact with. And, um, you know, this kind of begins to question the boundaries of this technology and, and biology interaction. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, does this really make us cyborgs or are we just using tools like Wikipedia in the same way I use a hammer? It's just, you know, I go pound on the, on the nail with the hammer and I just go call up the, the particular page in Wikipedia. How is it different? Well, actually, John, a hammer is not as external as you might think. <laughs> yeah. I thought you might go you know, there. <laughs> um, you know, to effectively use a hammer, your brain has to actually make it part of your arm. The fact is that, you know, our uh, ability to use tools is actually a consequence of a certain amount of brain plasticity, which is, the ability that our brain brain has to uh, control our limbs, even as they grow and change, and if you know, God forbid, you get some major injury and lose a hand or something, you still you your brain is able to adapt and make use of what remains, and that adaptivity is part of how you learn to use tools, and you have to learn to use tools. I mean, you know, you, you don't just, you're not born knowing how to use a hammer effectively. Um, it, it actually becomes part of the limbs of your body when you're using it most effectively. I think a, a tool, if we want to call it that, like Wikipedia is a much stronger form of that where it gets integrated into our mind, not just our, our physical limbs. So, you know, when you attach a computer to your brain through the keyboard and screen, it's more like extending your mind than like interacting with an external object. So in, in the book, I tell a story um, from the historian Charles Wiener, who had encountered a batch of um, Feynman's, Richard Feynman's original notes and sketches. And um, he remarked that the, the materials represented a record of Feynman's day-to-day work. But Feynman objected and Feynman said, no, I actually did the work on the paper, he said. And Wiener said, no, 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 that can't be, you know, the work was done in your head and, and the, the paper is a record of it. And Feynman said, no, it's not a record, not really, it's working. You have to work on paper and this is the paper. And so 
you know, what Feynman was saying is that the paper and pencil had really become part of the mechanism of the mind along with the brain, part of the, part of the physical host for the mind. I mean, when, when you think, right, any kind of thinking that you do, you, you use various capabilities of your brain. So for short-term memory, for example, to keep track of, you know, the numbers you were just talking about or whatever, you know, and to, you, you, you make use of these capabilities that the brain has. And you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't say that that making use of the short-term memory of your brain is making use of an external un, unrelated tool that's outside of your, the, what you would intrinsically call your mind. But if you use paper and pencil, why would we then say sort of arbitrarily that why is that any different from making use of the short-term memory in my brain? Um, why does it have to stop? Why does the mind have to stop at the brain? In other words, yeah, I, for me, this comes through very clearly. I, I, I'm a musician. I, I play jazz drums in a couple of trios around Austin. And uh, when I'm playing the drums, the, the, the instrument stops. It, it, it isn't like some separate thing from my body. The sticks are not separate. I don't think about what I'm doing with them. Uh, in fact, generally people say, if you're thinking about it, then you're probably not going to play very well. And in fact, it, it, the mind, in a sense, extends well beyond the drum set to the other performers in the trio or in any group that I'm playing in because we're, we're collectively improvising. And so uh, it really doesn't make a great deal of sense to think in terms of boundaries between these things. And, you know, the, for me, the drums very much don't have a boundary when I'm playing them. I'm, I'm just kind of like absorbed in the instrument. And of course, it's very physical because all of with a drum set, your all four limbs are being used at the same time. But you just, you're attached to it. And it's, it's really an expression, not of just your body, but of your mind. And, and so I, I think I, it, it makes a great deal of sense to me to think about other technologies, you know, drum sets a technology. It's 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 a particular kind of technology. But you know, why why say one technology we might think of that way, as you say, you know, but then writing on a piece of paper we don't think about that way, and and why not think about computers that way? So I, I think this is a very powerful observation that you make with this. Yeah, it's I, I have to give credit where credit is due. I in researching this book, I was very heavily influenced by um, a trend in psychology that is called embodied cognition, mm -hmm. which is very much about this idea that the mind doesn't stop at the boundary of the, uh, of the body. And, uh, Andy Clark at Edinburgh, for example, had a huge influence on me in this regard. He's written brilliantly about this idea. And, uh, so has Douglas Hofstadter, mm -hmm. who's yes. you know, famous for, for Fidel, Escher and Bach. But, uh, uh, he wrote a subsequent book called I Am a Strange Loop that it has just brilliant insights about this idea that, that the mind really doesn't start stop at the boundary of the body. Yeah, another um, person, uh, an anthropologist named Bruce Wexler, which wrote a, a really wonderful book about the brain. And he makes this the same kind of point. He says that even from a physical perspective, the idea that we're distinct from the environment doesn't make any sense. We're constantly exchanging matter with the environment around us. And, and so to talk about uh, any kind of real boundary between me and the environment it just doesn't make a great deal of sense because that, that's not what's happening in the world that we live in. And there's no reason not to think about our technologies that way as well. So I think, you know, this brings me to another really interesting theme that, that runs through the book. Um, you, you do something interesting in the book. Um, there's a kind of conscious conflation of humans and their creations that runs through the book, not just in the way that you're, you're making your argument, but you stop every so often and address the AIs that might be reading the book. Now, I will tell you the first time that I, I read that, I thought, what the hell is he doing? Uh, because for one thing, I had no idea that AIs read books um, before I encountered your book. Um, and But it turned out that was a very interesting thought because um, the fact that, and, and I'd like you to explain this a little bit, you know, what you mean when you're talking about AIs reading books, but it isn't just humans that are reading through the books. And um, at one point you, you're discussing DRAM memory and you note that um, the computer constantly repeats billions of bits um, of information 15 times per second. 
And then you said something that, that I, I stopped and I thought about this quite a bit. You said, remarkably, it does not get bored doing that. And I was really struck by this comment because throughout the book, you're, you're occasionally addressing AIs, um, of course, addressing the human reader. And I thought when you said that, it felt like we moved back to a kind of binary human computer um, that you're very clearly throughout the book uh, pushing away from that relationship. And so I want to ask you, well, first of all, I want you to explain a little bit what you mean by AIs reading the book. And then I, I want to ask, how do you know they don't get bored? And what does it mean to get bored? So I, I was initially very puzzled when I heard that Google had undertaken a project to scan and digitize every book that was ever published. Because, you know, at that time, I thought, well, you know, Google is a search engine. It's a, it's a mechanism for searching the web for content that's out there. And certainly they're not going to be able to serve up books in response because these would be a copyright violation. So why are they, why are they doing this? I couldn't see how it made any business sense for them to be doing it. And what I didn't realize at the time was that they would be using the content to train their AIs, that that is an enormously valuable data resource to teach artificial intelligences about language, about culture, about human beings. So on the question of whether the computers would get bored, uh, you know, I admit it was a little bit of a joke, but uh, not entirely, because one of the themes that develops much later in the book that is one of the more difficult ones because it's a bit more technical is that there's limits to what we can know about what's going on inside a process, that there's actually very fundamental limits. So by analogy, you know, we'll never know what it means to see like a bat, right? So, you know, bats use sonar. I've, I've uh, watched them, you know, uh, at dusk, uh, skimming over a pond, incredibly agile, incredibly fast, finding bugs, and they're seeing them with sonar. And we cannot even begin to imagine what that would be like. I think if we ever create machines that start to acquire cognitive capabilities like the ones that we normally attribute with higher living things, probably bats included, but certainly humans, um, we're not going to really have any idea what that's like. And we're not really going to be able to develop any idea what's that, what, what that's like from the perspective of whatever is going on inside the machine. So I address this question in, in the book is, you know, from the perspective of um, a sense of self, right? It turns out that animals, even the, the most primitive animals, so there's a, there's a worm that's a favorite one for uh, neuroscientists to study because it has only a few hundred neurons in its nervous system. And that makes it a far simpler system than any mammal, for example. But even this worm with only a few hundred neurons can tell the difference between stimulus to its sensory organs that is caused by some external event versus stimulus to its sensory organs that's caused by its own actions. Okay. And that's the beginnings of a nervous system developing a sense of self. And I show in the book that machines already have this. They, they have at least the kind of capability that this, uh, that this, uh, worm has. So an example that would be very familiar to, to everyone here is um, a smart speaker, like, uh, you know, the Amazon Echo, Alexa, the famous Alexa, or uh, Google Home. Um, these devices can be playing loud music and yet can hear you from across the room, say, Alexa. They're able to distinguish the sound that they are themselves producing from the sound that's coming from the environment. And that, you know, I 
make an attempt in the book to explain how that works from a technological perspective, because I personally find it fascinating. It's a feedback mechanism, and it turns out that it's a feedback mechanism that's very closely related to the way that artificial intelligences are trained these days. The deep learning algorithms that are being used to train AIs are using precisely this kind of feedback mechanism. So at least at the lowest level, the technology is already acquiring the basic mechanisms that enable the formation of at least a very primitive form of a sense of self. But I then go on in the book to, to point out that as this develops, we will probably get more and more disconnected with any sense of what is really going on from the perspective of the process that in the machine and that there are actually fundamental limits to what we can know in that case. Yeah, that is to me as an anthropologist, just uh, really one of the most profound uh, observations in the book. And, and, you know, this is what every anthropologist deals with all the time. I, I do my field work in Japan and um, I, I can never know what it is to be Japanese. That's not possible for me. I can know what it's kind of like to be Japanese. I can live there. I speak the language. Um, but an example that I use uh, often in classes is that uh, Japanese people don't count the way English speakers do. And it doesn't make any sense. You know, counting should be just counting. But when we count, we have, you know, one car, two cars, three cars. And for some reason, we feel the need to differentiate between one and more than one. So we stick an S on the end of, of the word. Japanese don't do that. Instead, they add counters to the words, to the numbers, and the counters describe um, the shape or the use, uh, the size of the thing. So if you have um, uh, two cows, uh, I would be nito. Uh, but if you have two dogs, small dogs, it would be nihiki. Ni is the word two, and, and then to is a counter for big animals, and hiki is a counter for small animals. Now, I've learned how to do this. I, I memorized it. But I don't think in terms of that. Um, my, my mind doesn't operate that way. And I thought, you know, as, when you worked through that, that, that was a point that really, really struck me. Because we, when we ask this question about our machines alive, is AI alive? That presupposes that we can get inside of those machines and understand the world from their perspective and, and understand how they process the things around them. But in fact, that's that's very hard to do. And and I think bats are a great example of this. Uh, I think it was a philosopher, Nagel, who, who talked about this. And uh, even animals that are very similar to us, you know, dogs. Um, I, I ask my students sometimes, you know, do you know how many scent receptors a dog has in his nose? And of course, they never know. Uh, but I think a typical hound dog might have something like 220 million scent receptors in, in its nose. And the typical human has about 20 million. Well, they're processing information that we just can't even imagine. And that, in a sense, means they live in a world we don't live in. It overlaps, but it's a very different world because they they process a whole variety of things that, that we just can't really imagine. And I, I've sometimes even wondered if, you know, do dogs... When they quote unquote picture the world, do they think in terms of smell as opposed to the visible things that we tend to think of? And so I really thought that was a, a really, really profound observation and, and, you know, was something that we need to think a lot more about is this, you know, question of can we even understand how an artificially intelligent machine, and let's drop artificial, just say an intelligent machine can, how it, it, its intelligence operates and how it deals with the world. Can we even really understand that, particularly, as you say, as it moves further away from us? Yeah, you just made it very clear to me, John, that we should really be encouraging computer scientists to study cult cultural anthropology, <laughs> I think. I think so. It would actually be very uh, helpful because, I mean, to give a very concrete example, it's very popular among uh in the computer science community to talk about this goal of uh, creating what they call artificial general intelligence or AGI. And it, this gets identified as one goal. And 
inevitably people think of these this AGI as being an intelligence like what we have in our own heads as we're having this conversation. And I can assure you, to the extent that we ever develop something approaching AGI in machines, it will be nothing like what's going on in our heads right now as we're having this conversation. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, when one studies a language, particularly one that's quite different uh, from our, our native language, you really kind of hit the reality that that the software is different. Um, you know, Japanese don't really use personal pronouns when they speak. Um, they exist, but they're not a necessary component of normal conversation. If they really have to identify somebody, um, they'll use the person's name. Sometimes they'll, they'll use personal pronouns, but you can, you can tell a, a foreigner, you know, kind of a mile away because they always use personal pronouns, particularly English, English speakers. And as a result, they don't use the language naturally. Um, and you know, if, if you think about it for a minute, if, if I say, go to the store and I point at you, you know, I mean, you go to the store. If I say, go to the store and I start walking out the room, you know, I, I mean, I go to the store, the context can determine this. And in many ways, that's how Japanese works. The context determines your knowledge of, of what's happening in, in terms of who's doing different things. Sometimes it's really confusing too, because sometimes you just can't figure out who's doing things, but, um, but it's, you know, in a sense, the software is different in, in Japan and, and we're the same organisms. We're all, you know, human beings and we, we largely process things in the same way, but, uh, you know, because of the language and culture, Japanese people don't really quite process their surroundings in the same way that say English speakers do. Uh, and I suspect if you look through lots of languages, you're going to find this and there's variations with this in probably every language to some extent. Yes. Uh, your, I mean, your observation is spot on, uh, the, the, how the structure of language is so intertwined with thought. And this is really part of the point that I make. You're, you're talking about natural language, but in the book, I, 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 I also talk about how programming languages affect the thought of the programmer and programmers actually internalize the way of thinking of a programming language without realizing that they've adopted a, a thought process and they don't, they're, they're unaware of that. They, in, and in fact, when we, when we teach the subject, I'm guilty, I've been guilty of this myself in the past. We pretend that we're teaching them objective facts about the world rather than indoctrinating them into a way of thinking. And so this is part of what I mean when I talk about how the technology creators are less in control of what they're building than they think because they don't realize that the very structure of their thoughts is influenced enormously by the technology that they're using to construct their artifacts. I'm curious, does that mean that, for example, um, software engineers who grow up in the United States speaking English, do they program differently than, say, software engineers in Japan or China? That's a very good question. Uh, I think that the whole world of software engineering is so overwhelmingly dominated by the English-speaking world that I, in some ways, I mean, not not even just English-speaking, also the male uh, and, you know, only certain ethnicities uh, have been big participants in it. And I have no doubt that the demographics of the uh, people involved in this, in the evolution of this technology have affected the direction of the technology. Yeah. Uh, and that if it had been a different group of people, it would, the technology would probably look quite different today. Yeah. It, if you ever get a chance, take a look at a uh, Japanese typewriter. Um, they used to have typewriters in Japan. Now they use, you know, PCs like we do. Um, they're enormous because you've got to figure out a way to account for all those characters. And, um, there, it's a very different kind of way of thinking about typewriting as opposed to the way that we, you know, do with, with English. And, and so, and of course, if you, if you 
write Japanese on a PC. You don't do it the way that you do English. There's more steps to it because you have to pick the characters that go into it. So um, the, in, in a sense, I had no, I've never thought of this before, but the, the, the technology of, or the software of word processing turns out to be different on the same computer in Japanese as opposed to English because the languages are so different. And in essence, because the way of thinking is really quite different. Yeah, it's, I've, I've never really thought about that before. That's interesting. Um, let me, I, I want to kind of turn on to, or turn to a, a, a different thing. I, long, long time ago, when I was uh, uh, at a, a graduate student at Yale, I, I went to a talk by Hans Moravec. Um, and he argued in this talk something that was very interesting, that he he said that he thought in creating intelligent machines, humans are engaged in advancing evolutionary processes that will eventually lead to our replacement. And, and his argument was basically that uh, we're aiding in the next step of evolution. I'm not entirely convinced I see evolution in terms of steps, but that, that's another issue. But he, you know, in a, what he was basically arguing is that we're going to go the way of the Neanderthals and, and, and you know, our, our descendants are artificially intelligent or mechanical or technological descendants are, are going to simply replace us. And um, you don't make this, you know, it's not an argument that you may make in the book, but it, it is certainly something that one could draw from the, the, the conversation that you work through in the book. And I'm wondering how you'd respond to people who see humanity as potentially being replaced by some future human machine hybrid or maybe entirely machines a post biological uh organism or being of some sort um and also how you might respond to people who think that's a bad thing well uh, in in this context i'm not exactly sure what replacement means one of the properties of evolution is that um is that things are constantly changing and i think we should certainly expect humans to be changing over the long run, uh, expecting a complete lack of change is just unreasonable. It's not the way it's happened in the past. The other issue is that, you know, are we talking about um, biological change or something else? I mean, are we talking about the, the DNA of human beings disappearing off the planet? or evolving into something that is incapable of uh, mating with uh, with what we call humans today. Well, uh, that is rather long-term. And in this context, I don't really think replacement is uh, the, a very likely outcome. Um, I, I actually take a bit of a deep dive uh, later in the book into how the field of uh, evolutionary biology has itself evolved because it turns out that it's a lot more sophisticated than when I was in school, when I studied it, uh, where the key idea was that random mutations would occasionally occur and sometimes they were beneficial and would therefore cause a small change in the phenotype of an organism that would then propagate to its offspring. Uh, but it turns out that evolutionary biologists have understood that these kinds of random changes are unable to explain certain very rapid evolutionary processes. So, for example, the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, if you try to construct kind of probabilistic models for how that might come about through random mutation, you realize that it actually couldn't possibly happen as fast as it does. And so biologists have identified a whole lot of other mechanisms that are involved that can cause evolution to enormously accelerate over brief periods of time. So it's certainly possible that we could, you know, that humanity could face some environmental threat that would uh, cause dramatic biological changes. Um, I don't think that it's going to be the development of artificial intelligences that's the most likely thing to drive that. Frankly, I find climate change a far bigger threat than the development of intelligent machines. Um, and in fact, it's certainly quite possible that climate change, well, you know, I, I think 
in recent human history, humans have managed to eliminate a lot of the natural selection mechanisms that would normally be imposed by the environment on a biological species, right? We, we've conquered a lot of diseases. We've, um, cre- we've created mechanisms that make um, starvation much more rare, right? And a lot of the sort of natural forces that will tend to drive natural selection have been tamed. Um, and that's an unusual thing in the history of our planet, right? To have that kind of stability. I think climate change could change that by creating some enormous stresses. Uh, but that's really pure speculation. In, in my book, I'm really much more much more focused on not so much the biological changes that might happen in humanity, but more the cultural and mimetic changes, to use Dawkins' term. How, how our society might get restructured and how our way of thinking might get restructured. Um, and in that sense, you know, are we going to be replaced? Well, I, I argue in the book that we're much more likely to end up in very deeply symbiotic relationships with technology, where we depend very heavily on technology. We already do. I mean, we couldn't possibly feed uh, the, what is it now, 7.8 billion people on the planet were it not for our fairly advanced technology. It just would not be possible without, without this technology. And so we're already very dependent on technology. And I think the dependence is only going to increase. And thinking of it as a development of a symbiotic relationship, I think, is at least to me helpful in understanding how uh, how it might evolve over time and how what sorts of actions we can take that might uh, that might make things turn out better than they would otherwise. Yeah, I, I think in some respects that the question itself is, is a reflection of this tendency to want to somehow pull humans out of this flow of evolution and change that's always happening and and somehow say the way we happen to be today is the way that we always will be, but we haven't been this way and we won't be this way. Um, we're a very different species today than we were 100 years ago when you know people were still... Uh, taking horses and, you know, driving, riding horses around to some extent. And, um, the airplane was a fairly new invention. It, we're, we're very different. And this kind of, this brings me up to a point you make in the last chapter that, um, you just des- described the we of today as, as being best understood as a mashup of technology and biology and culture. And I, I think that's a great way to think about this. And, and I'm curious about, you know, you, you mentioned the issue of culture in a, a moment ago, and, and I'm, curious how you define culture. And also you, you made a kind of an interesting observation that you felt that technology is changing the fastest among these three. But I found myself wondering if that's really true because they are intertwined in this sort of symbiotic, symbiotic relationship to the point that I'm, I'm not really even sure that we can talk about them as, as different things. I would probably argue that technology is culture that's reflected in the things that we make um, no more nor less than a painting might be. And so I'm curious what you would think about that and, and you know, what's culture for you and how is it maybe different from technology or not different from technology? So that's a wonderful and very nuanced question. And just, you know, to be clear, the three components of this mashup, they, they certainly have blurry boundaries, right? But I think it's useful to think of them nevertheless. And I, the way that I, portray them in the book as I talk about, you know, the biological world being one of those, the world of what Richard Dawkins called memes, the world of ideas and, and culture, and the world of the elderbees, uh, to use the word that my publisher hated, these uh, technological artifacts, right? So when I talk about culture, to me, it's, it's really the world of memes. Dawkins' word for ideas, languages, bureaucracies, laws, the third component, right, the world of machines, of course, interacts enormously with that world of culture. But I actually, I would argue that the world of, of culture changes more slowly and actually holds back the technology. 
that technology is actually capable of much more dramatic changes than we allow it to to impose on us. And um, so there's a, there's friction there. And it's, I think, a, a very healthy friction. I'm certainly not arguing that we should do things to remove that friction. But I think it is, the technology really is capable of much, much faster evolution than we're allowing it to, um, to manifest. So, um, you know, I guess one of the things that could accelerate that is, you know, we're already seeing primitive forms of software designing software. And, you know, every computer manufacturing plant is controlled by computers. Um, in fact, almost all of our manufacturing plants for anything that we manufacture are controlled by computers. So, you know, the machines have moved much beyond just being static physical manifestations of human ideas like Kelly's coronet. Kevin Kelly, when he talks about the coronet, these are not just static manifestations of human ideas. Um, we, we've seen software that procreates with no help at all from humans, like computer viruses, for example. Um, we've seen software that mutates with no help from humans. Uh, machine learning is an example of that. And, you know, the machines are gaining an autonomy that um, requires me to put them in a separate category from culture. And of course, the interaction with culture is uh, is huge and fascinating, but it's they're not just culture. Hmm. Or perhaps they're evolving to eventually have their own culture. Yeah. Something that, you know, as we were talking about before, will be very, very hard for us to understand because it's, it's based on a, a different really way of being in the world. And so we might not even be able to recognize that culture, I would imagine. Yeah. I give an example in the book, in fact, about an experiment that was uh, conducted by, uh, uh, by Microsoft where they uh, unleashed uh, bots to kind of teach each other negotiation skills. Mm. And they very quickly developed a rather bizarre language between them that, was very difficult for humans to understand, but apparently was very effective for these bots to be able to negotiate with each other. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, it really raises a, a kind of I don't, fascinating question of, of where all of this is, is going. And, and it is definitely going and some very interesting, I think, in a sense, I, I think what you really bring up very well is, is really a, a new form of life. I, I, I was convinced by your, your, uh, the gist of your argument that that we're we're witnessing the emergence of a different kind of life, um, and that, that it's something that we're going to be intertwined with. It's not necessarily something that's going to displace us or something like that, but it it is different, and it's going to require our thinking in new ways. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a really wonderful book, and and I I've, I've actually really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a fantastic conversation, and. I want to ask you now is, is, so what's up next? What are you, uh, you know, where's your research taking you now? Is or is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to add about all of this, but uh, I'm, I'm really interested also in, you know, just w what kind of interesting book you've got in mind for us next. Hmm. Well, I really appreciate your, your kind words about the book. I, I, I must say that I, it, for me, it's been quite a journey writing this book. And before that Plato and the nerd, it's been a, a real education for me. Um, I do have, I, I actually am sort of splitting my time between three projects right now. One of them is a very nerdy, very technical project, but uh, it's, a, it's a software project. And one of the interesting things about it is that it's, it's a collaboration with people around the world really wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the pandemic, that in some ways the pandemic sort of facilitated the development of this team, um, that I'm working very closely with people in Germany and France and across the U.S. on a, on a big collaborative software project, which is a lot of fun for me. Um, I also have two active writing projects. Uh, one of them is a deep dive into the idea of determinacy. Mm. Um, and the second one, believe it or not, is a deep dive into the concept of reality. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Hmm. I, uh, 
in in a way, you, I I sort of start with a, the word as used by physicists for the principle that a physical object has properties that determine the outcome of any measurement you make on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it turns out that that concept is problematic in modern physics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've been exploring various ways in which it turns out it's not just in modern physics where it's problematic. Um, that it, it seems to be a much broader problem and, so I'm sort of toying with a working title. I'd love to hear your feedback about this, but my working title for this is Reality, the Loss of Certainty. Well, uh, I'm actually, um, <laughs> I am myself working on a book right now that the basic gist of it is that um, we need to redirect our way of thinking and organize our minds around uh, a focus on uncertainty. That that's really what we have. Um, and that certainty really isn't available to us. And you know, certainly as an anthropologist, we run into this all the time, but um, that actually sounds like a, a wonderful title and a, and a really interesting topic. I'm curious if you have ever read any of the work of the physicist Henry Margineau. No, I have not, actually. He was a physicist and philosopher at Yale University. Um, I guess he started there maybe in the 1930s and was there and. Uh, until he, he died in the nineties. And, um, but he wrote a book called the nature of physical reality. That is a really, really interesting, uh, kind of blending of his work as a, as a, you know, an active physicist, he did work on, on radar, um, and his understanding of, of what he saw in quantum mechanics as, as this relationship between us and reality and the way that we construct reality, you might find it to be a very interesting book. It's, um, it's old, but it's, uh, I think, a really intriguing uh, exploration of just this kind of question. I've just put it on my reading list. Okay. Thanks for that. Great. Well, I think you, we have a lot of things to talk about, and I hope we can you know, do this again. I, I'm looking forward to your next book, so I want you to get writing on that really fast because uh, I really enjoyed this one a great deal. And, uh, and I, I encourage our, our listeners to go out and, and get this book. This, this is a book that I, I think um, – this will change people's way of seeing the world. I, I really think the coevolution is, has that in it. it. It puts us in a position to, to really kind of rethink the relationship between ourselves and our, our, our environment and the machines that we're creating. And so I want to thank you very much for you know, joining me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel for the New Books Network. And it has really been a pleasure talking about what is a fascinating book and a, a really some really thought-provoking research. Thank, thanks a million, uh, John, for the opportunity. I, as I said at the intro, I love this project that you're doing in exploring these books on this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun.